Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today, we're doing Full Metal Jacket. A pragmatic U.S. Marine observes the dehumanizing effects the Vietnam War has on his fellow recruits from their brutal boot camp training to the bloody street fighting in way. It's a war movie. Sort of. It is not your average war movie. No. Because... Almost two-thirds of the movie doesn't happen in actual war. Yeah. Your thoughts? This movie is stupid. No, it's not. Okay, I liked everything that happened in basic. Well, I didn't like everything, but I liked basic training. And then the movie has no point. You're so wrong. Okay, well, that's how I feel. But you are in good company. The great director Billy Wilder once told Cameron Crowe, he would have considered the Paris Island sequence to be the best movie he ever saw had the film ended there. Okay. You will not laugh. You will not cry. You will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Now get up. Get on your feet. And you're not alone. A lot of people say that about this movie. They're that is just, a common refrain. There's no connection between what happens in the first and what happens in the end. Oh, there so is, though. There really, there really isn't. Oh, there's a through line. I mean, what's-his-face is kind of jaded. Kind of, he totally is jaded. Joker? And then, yeah, Joker. Sorry, I don't know anybody's Matthew Modine's character. No, I don't he's, see it that way. Though. He's a little jaded, and then he's also like actually finally confronted with his, you know, this is your war face. So you're a killer, sir? Yes, sir. Let me see your war face, sir. You got a war face? Ah, that's a war face. Now let me see your war face. Ah! Bullshit! You didn't convince me. Let me see your real war face. Ah! You don't scare me. Work on it. Sir, yes, sir. And he can't do it. Well, he like, does, but he can't He can't turn away from the awfulness of it. Well, exactly. And so, like, that's the only thing. It's like, okay, I like that parallel, but this journey we went on is so fucking stupid. No, it's not. It is. It's, it's so, so real. The only movie that may capture Vietnam better than this is Platoon. No, I've not seen that. And I've not seen Platoon either, but everybody says that the best movie that really accurately gets at what it was like to be there is Platoon. Okay. This comes in a close second mm -hmm. because it is not about the war. It's about the people and the soldiers that were there. And I know that that's a very reductionist way of looking at things, but the story this is based on is focused on that. Mm -hmm. And the central theme of Joker having to completely break down his facade that he's built up to try to shield himself from all of this mm -hmm. is such a rewarding journey. But it's not. Oh, I, I disagree. anything rewarding about it. Mm, I disagree. We'll talk about it. We'll see where we end up later. Mm -hmm. You might convince me. I might convince you a little bit. So Platoon came out a year before, won Best Picture, won some acting Oscars, and really overshadowed this movie. Okay. Because this movie was being made about the same time. Yeah, but Stanley Kubrick takes fucking forever. They started filming this, I think, early 1985, mm -hmm. and it didn't come out till 87. Mm -hmm. So next to 2001, it almost sounds like this was one of the longest movies that it ever took him to make. Makes sense. In fact, Vincent D'Onofrio recalled that it took so long that Matthew Modine got married, conceived a child, they had the child, and the child turned one before the time this movie was done filming. That's at minimum... Two and a half years, basically. 20, 21 months. Yeah. <laughs> like, if, what if... Like, just from conception 
to one years old. And it was in development for even longer. Yeah, I don't know. I, I believe that. That's so fine. This, one, this one took a very long time to make. Mm-hmm. Its budget was an estimated $30 million. Its opening weekend was $2.2 million. But its total gross in the U.S. is only $46 million. Yeah, so not great. Not a great return on budget. Again, I think a lot of that had to do with everybody thought Oliver Stone's movie was the Seminole War movie. Nobody was going to make a better Vietnam movie after that. And so this one just got kind of sidelined. Yeah, it happens. And again, this one has had a much bigger response on home video later down the road. The writing of this movie is based on the novel The Short Timers by a gentleman named Gustav Hasford. He wrote this novel based on real characters and patrol names, I'm assuming nicknames, Mm -hmm. that he encountered during his time in Vietnam, and he was writing it while he was serving in Vietnam. Oh, wow. And Hasford is a fucking character with a capital C. There is this whole article I found from an LA Times writer Mm -hmm. um, when he was found dead in Greece, was completely drunk, and had basically been chased out of the country on suspicion of like $100,000 of stolen library books from Stanford. <laughs> this guy was a true eccentric. He stole library books wherever he went okay. and was a voracious reader. Okay. So anyway, he is worth looking up. And what's interesting is his two books on the war are still the best selling and considered the best written books on the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And they are both out of print. Interesting. This book was a bonanza at the time the movie mm-hmm. came out. But it went completely out of print, possibly because of the scandal that erupted in the wake of that. That happens. In the book, Sergeant Hartman is far more sadistic and less vulgar. Mm -hmm. And he actually both tortures the privates inside the barracks Mm -hmm. and then forces them to torture each other. Mm -hmm. And Lee Ermey, who we'll get to, said no DI would be able to regain control of his group. If he had to do that, a drill instructor would lose the entire respect of his men if he was forcing them to torture each other. Mm-hmm. The idea is to break people down yeah. and rebuild them, not to turn them against each other mm-hmm. and their drill instructor. Yeah. So Ermi had a huge say in how that all went down. Okay. And we'll get to how that all happened when we get to him in the cast. Kubrick wanted to work extensively with Hasford on the writing of the script. He had many Mm -hmm. calls with him and then he decided he was going to have him over to his house. But his friend, Michael Herr, who was a reporter in Vietnam and who co-wrote the script with Kubrick said, you don't want to meet this guy. I'm worried he's dangerous. And after one meeting, Kubrick said, I can't work with this man. Mm. Now Hasford recalls it differently (laughs) Kubrick and her, he said, tried to keep pushing him off of the credits for the script, and they did. They wanted him to get an additional dialogue credit only. Mm. And Hasford kept coming to set. He, like, sutterfuged in with other of his vet friends to get on set and sneak on. Mm -hmm. And they were like, this is my fucking story, and you're taking my fucking dialogue. You're giving me the writing credit. And he's not wrong. And he straight up threatened to sue with legit reasons, and Kubrick and her backed off. I mean, it's not that he doesn't deserve some credit, but you don't get to push off somebody whose story you're taking just because they're difficult. It's a little weird. I don't know who to believe because this guy is clearly a big character. Mm -hmm. So who knows? It's a he said, he said issue. I imagine 
they thought they were changing things enough to where they went, eh, this is probably not that. And Kubrick himself may not have been completely involved in that. Mm-hmm. He's got lawyers. Lawyers do that all the time. Yeah. So it could have been negotiations on what happened. But Hasford threatened to go to the press and say, you're taking a Vietnam vet story and you're saying that I'm not getting credit for it. I'll tell every news outlet in America. And Kubrick and her went, yeah, no, no, no. We don't need that problem. We can't do that. No. <laughs> so let's talk about the writing. Okay. What do you think? I mean, I have a problem with the story because I think it's stupid. Well, not stupid, but it's just... Well, what do you think is so pointless about the war sequence once we get to Dunning and Wei? What's the point? The point is that Joker hasn't seen what battle really looks like. Okay. And as a war correspondent, you know, it, it breaks down as an inevitability. Mm-hmm. He goes to Dunning. He's been a reporter. They've never really been in the shit. You know he's never been in the shit because he ain't got the stare. The stare? The thousand yard stare. A Marine gets it after he's been in the shit for too long. It's like, it's like you've really seen beyond. And they've wasted so If The whole point is like, let's do Joker's story. They've wasted way too much time making him someone on the side. Part of this is it's Hasford's story. So I think that's part of the issue here is that it's the actual linear cycle of what happened it it doesn't matter if you're trying to tell a cinematic story joker's not the main character until what's his face dies well okay but then is it joker's story or is joker the lens through which we're seeing the story but we don't see a whole lot through his lens like it's just sequence 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 done see i'm okay with that it's just, it, they're not connected enough. Like, there's not enough tissue between the two, because we just go straight from we're at basic to I'm a jaded dude overseas. But he's not a jaded dude. He's still the same Joker that he was in basic. He was in survival mode in basic, but he's still the fucking comedian. That hasn't broken off yet. But we barely got comedian in basic. We didn't even get that. Hmm. We go straight to, they're shaving everybody's head, they're in a line, someone makes a joke, and he laughs. That's all we get. And then from that point on, it's all about Vincent D'Onofrio's character and Joker helping him. That's all it is. We never fucking see him be a Joker except for one goddamn line, and that's it. Well, then maybe maybe you're right. Maybe the issue is that the linear through line there could be he's showing compassion He's trying to help out his fellow Marines. He's, try- he's, he's being a brother in arms. And then when Pyle blows his yeah. DI and himself out of the universe, mm-hmm. that's what puts him in cynical mode. Yeah, but we don't see him before. Like, we don't see him before he meets Pyle. So we don't know how he is. And then we see him with Pyle. And we're like, oh, he's just the guy who's bringing him up. And oh, now I'm concerned that he's going crazy. He shoots himself. Now I'm jaded overseas. There's nothing that connects any of those bits together other than, oh, this guy is in is here. It's just it's bad. I bought it. Okay, well. But I I will I will say if you don't buy that tissue and you don't buy that transition, Mm -hmm. then, yeah, it will. What transition? There is no transition. But there doesn't need to be because it's not. If you're telling me that this is Joker's story, his evolution there is no transition, and this is a horrible fucking movie about Joker. Well, for me, it's not about Joker. It's that Joker is an allegory for the regular soldier in war. But this is still does not give us any context of who he was before he joined the military. 
who was he before he met the sergeant? Who was he as a soldier as he was dealing with Pyle? What happened right after Pyle died? I don't know. Exactly. I don't need to know. <laughs> so you're just... I get it. No, I get it. I totally do. See, this, this is where you have just suspended your disbelief so much that you don't accept that there are things missing from the actual story. I did. Okay. But I... I mean, that's fine. Everybody's going to view it differently. And so where I agree with you is if that doesn't connect for you, if you don't in your own viewing of the movie, make your own connection there, then yeah. Because, well, because the whole first half of the movie, they're telling me Pyle's story. It's Pyle's basic training story. Yeah. That's what the story. And then all of a sudden he kills himself. We still have an hour left of this movie. What are we doing? Oh, we're going to make a bunch of jokes about accents and prostitutes and everyone's trying to kill everyone. Okay, cool. So. (laughs) (laughs) i knew this one was gonna get contentious because i still really like this and i know you're not a fan that's usually where we get our best conversations i know so (laughs) it's boring when we agree with everything the directing okay mr stanley kubrick stylistically i think this strings all of his techniques together in a really good way everything we've seen up until this point the different things he's experimented with Mm -hmm. are really coming together i'm not saying how he chooses to edit or string the story together. Mm -hmm. I'm just talking visually. A lot of the stuff he's done up until now is really, to me, all of that's being packed into this story. I didn't get that at all. Oh, the lighting, the camera shots, the wide angles. All of, okay, everything that happened in the barracks, all of it's very linear and it just, you know, sliding back and forth. That felt very Kubrick. And that made me feel like, oh, this is just a different angle or or style that we're going to from what we did in 2001. Okay, cool. But everything else, I'm just like, whatever. I love it. I really do like it. I guess there are these elements of, you know, when when the guys are getting shot Mm -hmm. in slow-mo out in the middle of way... Mm-hmm. During the last sequence with the sniper. That is a good sequence. I But I don't think it's anything special. And honestly, Apocalypse Now is better. I feel like they're equal. Just how I view it. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I got emotionally affected when Cowboy got killed. Okay, I really I did. I was like, okay, which dude is that? He's dead. All right, cool. Oh, man. I didn't care. This one got to me. It's got to be an intangible thing. I don't know. I, I can't put my finger on mm-hmm. why... I really it just hit you well into it. I just hit you right. Yeah, but it's hit me, but it's hit me right twice now. Yeah, and I was just like, all right, okay, I'd rather be watching Apocalypse now. Uh, that movie got boring. <laughs> there's not that much about his process for making this movie, other than it was pretty legendarily long. Kubrick did try to get Modine to stay on the set while his wife was planning to deliver the baby, and Matthew Modine literally threatened to injure himself to get off set. He basically threatened to pull the Vietnam vet. I'm going to shoot myself in the damn foot to get myself out of here. And Kubrick went, oh, okay, okay. <laughs> that reminds, what is it? Colin Hanks told a story. He was doing a movie and he had actually never signed his con. It was an indie film. Oh. And it was his, one of his kids was going to be born. And he had to get on a plane on like Sunday. And thankfully his kid was born on Saturday and he showed up on set when he was supposed to, and he and he handed them the signed contracts. Like, you should have gotten this months ago because I am telling you right now, if my kid had not been born, I would not be here. Yeah, and it was an indie film; they couldn't afford to not have him. So it was one of those things. It was just like you got lucky. But this one, 
Kubrick has already started to go into a little bit of eccentricity at this point. He had a horrible fear of flying. Mm -hmm. And so everything got filmed in England. Okay. Which I've got to say. Pretty good. Because I did ask. I was like, where do they film this? Because there are bits that film like, oh, this feels like Indiana to me. A little bit. I mean, when you're watching Parish Island, Mm -hmm. that is all in an English barracks. Mm -hmm. And funny enough, it was the Bassingbourne barracks, which was a World War II bomber base, where the Memphis Belle flew from. Oh, okay. Matthew Modine connection. I know, I get it. But that was all done there. And then the brilliance is Arlie Ermey, who was originally hired as the technical advisor for this film. Mm Mm-hmm hand inspected the entire set because he knew what Parish Island was supposed to look like. Oh, great. So Ermi was in charge of taking that and completely detailed Making transforming it, it. And I got to say, it looks like it does, South it Carolina. Does, it does not look read England at all. Between all of the stuff, way, you know, one of the interesting things, they chose to set it in Donang and Way specifically because it was a coastal town. Mm-hmm. And so that way they didn't have to deal with the jungle. Mm-hmm. So they brought palm trees in from Spain okay. in order to get the same impression, but they're in a, they're on the coast, yeah, so they so don't they have, to, don't have to deal with that. The final battle sequence was filmed in an abandoned gas works in Beckton, so it was all crumbling buildings Crumble that building. they just dressed up, mm-hmm. and they very inventively used what was around them and location scouted well enough to they make did. everything look like it was where they were. They did no, because I. I remember because I've, you know, because we've got some other movies coming. I've done a little bit of research. I'm like, okay, at some point he stopped leaving England. And I was like, that's why I was like, okay, so where do they film this? Because I figured like, okay, maybe they're in Europe. He's like, he doesn't want to come to America because, you know, you can take the, you can take the train to France. Yeah, but he doesn't, he He, did not want to fly, period. Mm -hmm. Probably the easiest spot is you'll notice there's a lot of scenes where the background is obscured by smoke. Mm -hmm. That was to cloud out any of the suburbs of London mm-hmm. and the outskirts of London so that you wouldn't see any of the cities behind. That makes sense. So they intentionally obscured it when they needed to when the shot was coming through. Mm-hmm. The designer Anton First, who was on call 24 hours a day and at one point completely passed out because he was just so exhausted. Oh, gosh. Because Kubrick was just like, you're on call. I, I, if I need you, you get over here. I mean, if it's good money and you want that job, you take it. I mean, for the, I mean if you're young... Or you're single and you can make it work and the price is right. Whatever. There are really no cast horror stories mm-hmm. from what I can tell. So it sounds like more everybody was doing their thing. He tried to keep it as safe as he could. There's a mm-hmm. lot going on. Yeah. But the, the designer Anton first gave this great quote. We didn't want blue skies. If the sun came out, Kubrick didn't shoot. When the squad went into the burned city of Kwai, we had every building on fire. Paris Island was supposed to train them for their tour of Vietnam, so we contrasted the cleanness of the boot camp with the filth of the war. And the point was that they came up against something they never could have trained for. Yeah. So the production design itself and the way everything looks really conveys the story they're trying to tell. Mm -hmm. I would acknowledge that it does work better more as an allegory than it does an actual story. Yeah. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. No, it does. It's more just an image of the war as an idea. Mm. Our cast. Cast. So a note on the casting of this film. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Kubrick would not leave to go watch any casting auditions, but he needed American actors. So it was all done through videotapes. Cool. Ads went out to 
every major place to say, send in a videotape of you doing some sort of Vietnam War scene. And so 3,000 tapes were received in total. Mm -hmm. Kubrick personally watched about 800 of those. Okay, that's still a a huge ratio. And I mean, when you look at the cast list, it's, it's indicative of how we still hadn't gotten to that technology place. There are like a bajillion Paris Island soldier mm-hmm. background, Paris Island soldier background. Like there's like 30 names of guys who are just in that whole group. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a bunch of random actors, a few of whom were have, kind of notable. And have since gone on to do big things. Indeed. And it starts off with our lead actor, Matthew Modine, playing mm-hmm. Private Joker. Oh, yes, sir! That you, John Wayne? Is this me? Who said that? Before this, he was in Private School, Streamers, Birdie, and Vision Quest, which he took sequences from Vision Quest and sent that in as his audition. Hmm. And then after this, Orphans, Married to the Mob, Memphis Bell, Pacific Heights, Shortcuts, and the band played on, Cutthroat Island, Notting Hill, Any Given Sunday, Weeds, The Dark Knight Rises, and most recently, the biggest thing he's done is Stranger Things. Mm-hmm. Still a working you- actor. Every once in a while, they throw him a good role. He's a really great actor who just flies under the radar a lot. He was also in a Hallmark movie that I particularly liked called What the Deaf Man Heard. Mm. He played a, a dude who suffered a traumatic event, and so he just went mute, and everyone assumed he was deaf. So he just played along with that, and then he got older, and everybody would tell him all these things that he should not know. Nah. And it's just great. It's just it's, it's a great movie. What do you think of Matthew Modine's performance in this film? It's good. He does his sequences well. When he's playing the nice guy in in training, like, I'm, I'm going to help this guy get through this. I believe him. When he's playing, you know, the jaded soldier, I believe him. When he's freaked out, I believe him. I believe his horror when he goes ahead and lets them have the beating mm-hmm. of pile in the barracks. Like he's conflicted. But he's so horribly conflicted about letting these guys do that. Yeah, because well, he knows if he stops it, then he's next. Yeah. That's part of it. And then, you know, he does express concern for pile, but not really knowing how to deal with it. He has no idea what to do. And I, it's a parallel to the end. Yeah, and that's okay. So I believe him. He's great. Yeah. The story sucks. That's fair. <laughs> but I will say... I think out of all of the movies we've watched thus far, this is the most consistently good acting across the board that we've gotten. Mm, That's probably true. We've got really great performances Mm -hmm. in other movies and then some just very flat on purpose performances from others. But I like how everybody feels real in Mm -hmm. this movie particularly. I think that's one thing that really captivated me. The performances really grabbed me for this movie, Mm. and I'm really willing to let myself dive into them, even though the story may not be complete enough. We do get two who could have been betters. Val Kilmer auditioned for this role. I can see that. Mm -hmm. And then saw Matthew Modine and challenged him to a fight, saying that Modine had stolen the role. The funny thing was... Modine didn't even know about the auditions at that point. Mm. <laughs> That's awesome. Then he found out about it and submitted his tape. He's like, I stole it now, motherfucker. The original person cast in this role mm-hmm. was Anthony Michael Hall. Um, okay. He prepared for the role for eight months. Wow. But was unhappy with the salary and schedule mm. and disagreed with Kubrick over his process and directing style. I buy that. So eventually, 
got the boot and Matthew Modine comes in. I mean, the thing is, at this point, if you're going to do a Kubrick film, you aren't doing anything else. Yeah. He owns your ass for however long it takes. And I understand as an actor, you're like, you know what? I can get other roles. I, it's it's This isn't worth it for me. I'm also going to say, I think Matthew Modine's the best choice here. I agree. Of those, I would pick Matthew Modine. Val Kilmer's too beefy mm-hmm. and too pretty. And Anthony Michael Hall wasn't quite the rugged Anthony Michael Hall yet. Modine's the right person to take this role. He's got this interesting look. He's tall and lanky. He pulls it off really well. The other thing is that Private Joker originally died at the end of the script. And Mm. during a disagreement with Kubrick, Modine actually said, there's no way he should die. He has to live. Because in the original script, during the Mickey Mouse sequence, there would have been a flashback to when he was five playing with a toy rifle. Mm -hmm. And then he would have pretended to die in that sequence as he's flashing back Mm -hmm. and then walked into an ambush with with the Viet Cong and be killed. I would have liked that better. But Modine argued that it's the horror of war. He sees all of this. He has to experience losing his drill instructor, this person that he tried to help, and his best friend, Cowboy. And he's got to watch all of this death and horror and confront it head on. And then he has to live with that and hold on to it. But we don't see him living living with it. If you're watching his face, you do. No. Right at the end sequence with that. That sniper? Yes, you do. No. Uh, No. Poorly executed. But Kubrick told him that is the end of this movie. And Modine never knew whether that was the plan all along or whether Kubrick decided to go with him. Hmm. All right. The next build actor is Adam Baldwin as Animal Mother. Talk the talk. Do you walk the walk? So it's uh, the first version of Jane. Adam Baldwin had been around. He was a yeah. known quantity by the time this movie rolls up. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize how far his career went. He starts before this with My Bodyguard, mm-hmm. Ordinary People, Hadley's Rebellion, DC Cab, and Reckless. And after this, The Chocolate War, Next of Kin, Predator 2, Radio Flyer, Wyatt Earp, How to Make an American Quilt, Independence Day, from the Earth to the Moon, The Patriot, Firefly, Serenity, Chuck, and he has had a long-standing leading role on The Last Ship. Yep. It's Jane. Caro from Canton. In a garbage pile. Yeah, he's stepped in it quite a lot in the last couple of years. So. Well, I, I don't think he's stepped in it. He's intentionally on brand with his conservatism. <laughs> he was scheduled for three months of total filming, and it took nine months to complete his role. Yep. What do you think? What do you think about him, Baldwin? You could sub him out with just about anybody. Could you sub him out for Arnold Schwarzenegger? Because that was the who could have been better. I would have enjoyed that better. Really? He would have come off as like a bigger deal. Don't fuck with me. This was right around Predator time, Mm -hmm. too. So Schwarzenegger with the... He would have been a scene stealer. Well, and Schwarzenegger with the thousand yard stare Mm -hmm. would have been fascinating because Mm -hmm. we would have seen this deeper level from him. And also someone who is very jaded having been in a war zone being like, no, dude, you have no clue what you're going into. Like that would have been more impactful coming from like this big beefy dude like Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I picked Schwarzenegger over Baldwin. And I loved him as Jane. I love Jane, but no. Goodbye. Do you think you have a problem with it because you've seen him as Jane? No. Okay. I was just curious. I didn't know. I just think it's nothing special. Jane is special because of how Jane's written. Yeah. 
and it's hilarious. I'll be in my bunk. It's one of my favorite things in the entire world. <laughs> this is just like, it's not, it's not as interesting. It's more of a feature role. And he didn't do anything special with it. You needed a slightly you higher a caliber. Spice. Of you need a little spice there. Something. Next up, Vincent D'Onofrio as Private Gomer Pyle. He does not look like himself at all. And he's fucking great. He's he's amazing. This is his first major film role. Mm-hmm. He did a couple of credits before this. This is his breakout thing. And after this... Adventures in Babysitting, Mystic Pizza, JFK, The Player, Ed Wood, Strange Days, Feeling Minnesota, Men in Black, The Newton Boys, The 13th Floor, Steal This Movie, The Cell, The Dangerous Lives of Alter Boys, The Salton Sea, Thumbsucker, The Breakup, Brooklyn's Finest Law and Order, Criminal Intent, Jurassic World, The Magnificent Seven, 2017's Chips, Daredevil, and he is directing and starring in a movie with a bunch of famous people called The Kid. He heard about the auditions from Matthew Modine mm-hmm. and filmed his own audition tape. Cool. And we have the legendary weight gain. Yes. He beat Robert De Niro's record for Raging Bull. Mm-hmm. He gained 70 pounds for this film. Okay. It took him seven months to gain that weight and nine months to lose that weight through physical training. Wow. So sounds like he did do it in a healthy manner. It's it's never healthy for anyone to gain that much weight. No, but, but I get it. If you're going to do it for a role and you're doing it over a course of time being monitored, it sounds like taking that long to do it and to get it off, he really did like have proper supervision in doing that. That's all that matters. Yeah. Arlie Ermey said that D'Onofrio gave the best performance in the film. I probably wouldn't argue that. Correct. Modine comes in a close second mm-hmm. for me. He said he based his performance on the silent film works of Lon Chaney and that Kubrick's note for him at one point was, I want you to be big, Lon Chaney big. And D'Onofrio said he took that as a personal point of pride hmm. because he'd already he'd be been doing that. In that work. vein, it's like, can I get bigger? And due to his weight during the basic training sequences, he did tear ligaments in his knee. Yeah. So I think that's one of those, it's not really anybody's fault, it's but just, it's, it's probably it's, it's like happen. when you go on Dancing with the Stars, you're just, you, you're going you're gonna to hurt some shit. And if you've gained that much weight, it's going to be that much gonna harder hurt. on you. It's going to hurt. He's insanely good. He is great. I've always adored him. He's he's a phenomenal actor. I forgot he was in Adventures in Babysitting. Ugh, I love that movie. Ugh. But just that transformation of fresh-faced. Mm-hmm. With his name being Leonard Lawrence, there is this assumption that like he's kind of a moneyed black sheep type character. Mm-hmm. Like, you almost get the impression that he's this rich kid that... He can't hack it with his family, so going to the military is the only way he can still be a respectful person. Yeah. Yeah, no, which was definitely, like, that was a thing during this time. It's still a thing, but... But there's something bubbling underneath, and then between his DI and the whole platoon turning against him, Mm -hmm. something snaps. And he becomes a perfect soldier. He becomes a perfect soldier. I did like, see, I loved watching that progression. Like you see him in the beginning and there's nothing too, too different. But if you look at the first sequence with him in the front versus the last sequence we see of him in the front of the marching, it's like night and day. Oh, yeah. Like, and it's not su- like it's subtle and obvious at the same time, which is just the gift. But it's also a huge red flag when he cannot stop smiling. Mm-hmm. He cannot stop himself. Yeah, and you're like, that. Something's wrong here. Yeah. So you just you just watch this slow 
and complete mm-hmm. downward spiral for him. Well, they broke him in a lot of ways. Even as Joker is desperately trying to save him. Mm-hmm. Desperately. But yeah. like he, he starts it. to notice something's off. Like, oh, this isn't okay. It's just that look of horror on his face in, in the latrine. Yeah. And just looking at him going, I can't do that. And, and yelling at him, what are you doing with that gun? What is this Mickey Mouse shit? Sir, it is the private's duty to inform the senior drill instructor that Private Pyle has a full magazine and is locked and loaded, sir! Like, you're like, I don't fucking know what to do. He's gonna kill us. I'm just letting you know this isn't, like, this isn't a drill. (laughs) This is not a drill. He really is fantastic, and it really does set the tone for his whole career. Oh, yeah. Like, every role he's done in some way is informed by this. A little bit. And it's got that, like, element of madness involved. I've always loved him. Yeah. He's a treasure. R. Lee Ermey as Gunnery Sergeant Hartman. Oh, my God. This, This dude. This is the thing that put him on the fucking map. All right. Now, to be fair, he had long been a technical advisor mm-hmm. for movies and, and different things. Mm-hmm. He was moved into Hollywood and, and really was a good transition into helping movies do Marines. He's actually uncredited in Apocalypse Now as one of the helicopter pilots. Oh, cool. So that's kind of fun. That is fun. And ties in with our stuff with, with that film. Mm-hmm. After this, he did a ton of voiceover work, but he was in a lot of movies, and I didn't even realize this. Mm-hmm. He's in Mississippi Burning, Fletch Lives, 1991's Toy Soldiers, on Deadly Ground, Naked Gun 33 and a Third, Murder in the First, Seven, Leaving Las Vegas, Toy Story, Dead Man Walking, and The Frighteners. Mm. And it wa- it wasn't just these comic appearances. I-, I actually kept those out specifically other than Naked Gun mm-hmm. because he did show up as like random cameo for joke's sake. Mm-hmm. But he was a legit credited performer in a yeah. lot of other stuff. Yeah, no, he became too. an actual actor. Played a sheriff a lot. That makes sense. Like, like he's he's the guy you have to play a grumpy, authoritative dude. Yeah, and you can have him play that for serious seriousness, or you can have him play that for laughs. Just depends on what you need. Pretty much, sir. Sir, what are you about to call me an asshole? Sir, no, sir. How tall are you, Private? Sir, five foot nine, sir. Five foot nine. I didn't know they stacked shit that high. You trying to squeeze an inch in on me somewhere, huh? Sir, no, sir! Bullshit, it looks to me like the best part of you ran down to crack your mama's ass and ended up as a brown stain on the mattress. I think you've been cheated. He was not the original actor hired for this film, of course. He was hired as the consultant. Okay. Originally, Kubrick wanted to cast Bill McKinney, the mountain man from Deliverance, but Kubrick... And his weirdness was apparently so disturbed by his performance in that film that he could not bring himself to meet the guy in person. Interesting. He He, gets spooked easily, I guess. He's got some weird phobias and eccentricities. The Shining really broke him. He then hired the actor Tim Colseri, but that guy never got the role. And Colseri was bitter for a while, but he did get a role. He is the absolute crazy door gunner when rafter man and joker are flying into way oh okay he is the guy mowing down peasants in the field okay yeah get some baby get some get some get some 
Harley Ermy was walking around the set monitoring everything, and he was looking at it going, none of these guys are up to snuff. None of these actors look like Marines. And he said, I want the role. And Kubrick heard him out and said, no way. And immediately, Arlie Ermey barked at him to stand up when ordered. And Kubrick instinctually stood up. Yeah. Like out of base instinct. Like, oh, someone's yelling at me, just do it. So Kubrick said, okay, I'll give you a screen test. You have 15 minutes. You must continue to improvise insults and abuse at soldiers. Mm Mm-hmm. Without repeating yourself, mm-hmm. and we are going to throw tennis balls and oranges at you. <laughs> I love it. You cannot get distracted. You cannot repeat yourself. You cannot flinch, and you cannot ever stop talking. Ermi nailed it. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> and Kubrick went, You're the guy. Like, I, We're done. That's awesome. Yeah. I love that. That, that, test, that is actually amazing. I, I desperately want to see that screen test. That's, <laughs> That's an amazing test. Okay, so that. Okay, that is a really cool director thing. This is your challenge. Let's see if you can do it. Probably suspecting that he's probably going to do really good, but he is going to flinch or he will get a little distracted. And that's why we take 8,000 takes. But I'm going to set the bar this high. Well, and that's what's funny is Ermi had the least amount of takes. Mm-hmm. He usually only needed two or three takes per scene. And that's probably just for coverage. The only scene that took more was the jelly donut scene. What the fuck? That required 37 takes, and that's mostly because of the complicated nature of the shot coverage. Ermi's obviously the only choice for this role. Mm -hmm. It's iconic. Mm -hmm. It will never escape you. And you really do get the feeling, you know, he said during his time in the Marine Corps, there never would have been an instructor that would actually hit a private. Mm -hmm. If that ever happened, you wouldn't have ever seen it. Yeah. And it goes back to... You are breaking people down, but you have to keep their respect the whole time. It's Mm -hmm. a very fine line. And so you're insulting them to break down their response and then eventually build camaraderie Mm -hmm. so that they all begin to think it is a joke. They don't react, but they get what the point is of Mm -hmm. what they're doing. And they even talk about that, you know, he's a lot looser when they're doing the gun range stuff. Mm -hmm. The DIs would be that way because you have to be an expert marksman. So here, I need you to relax. Mm -hmm. You can't be on edge while we're trying to learn how to shoot. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is so many people said he ad-libbed this whole thing. That's actually not true. Mm -hmm. Ermi worked with Kubrick the whole time to very specifically craft the lines. Mm -hmm. And so there was some room for improvisation, but there were always specific lines that they They had to to hit. hit. They worked together to build those beats out. And the most important part, Again, with Kubrick's isolation, none of our main actors at Parish Island ever met Ermi before the filming, mm-hmm. nor did he, nor they was he allowed to fraternize time with, with them. them. Oh, yeah. No, that makes sense. Kept sequestered. Oh, yeah. No, I would do that, too. And then this goes back to something that I didn't bring up earlier, but I think has a problem with our story. Mm-hmm. This movie was filmed almost entirely out of sequence. Oh, yeah. That doesn't help. The Vietnam sequence was filmed before Parish Island. Mm-hmm. 
I think that's why the connective tissue doesn't necessarily match. Well, they didn't create any. So they probably think, well, this is where we end up. This is where we're starting. And honestly, I'll figure it out in the edit. And they didn't. But honestly, it's a visual issue because you can't shave their heads. No, I get that. And let it grow out. So you had to film it that way. But yeah, you're right. If the writing is stronger there, you're not going to lose that feeling. Because I think what it is, is they were relying on the actor's feeling sticking through and it doesn't no, do they that. didn't have the scenes or they didn't have it written out that we're, this is how we're going to connect these parts of the story. Plus, this whole time we filmed this really sort of jaded, different war sequence. Mm-hmm. Then when we get over to Parrish Island, it's this totally different environment mm-hmm. and Arlie Ermy has been, you know, spent two years getting this shit ready. Mm-hmm. And now they're in this whole other wave world and emotional environment. I think that's the issue. I mean, that makes sense. And I think you're right. Having a stronger tie in the script Mm -hmm. would have bridged that gap for us. We get Dorian Harewood as 8-Ball. He doesn't have a whole lot of credits. He had some a lot of voiceover stuff more recently. Mm -hmm. The reason I bring him up is we have a very important who could have been better with this. Mm -hmm. Denzel Washington was offered this role. And he turned it down. And he says, that's one of the biggest mistakes I've made in my career. No, he's fine. But he would have been great. You know, you didn't lose out on a ton of money or notoriety. You have two Oscars, dude. You did You did fine. That's fair. I don't know. It's not a role that needs to be a scene stealer. And I feel like if you put Denzel in there, he might have he might have pulled some focus. The Marine advance in Way took four weeks to complete that whole shooting sequence with the sniper. Mm-hmm. And so... Harewood basically described his time as lying on the ground for a whole month. It's not a bad way to get a paycheck. <laughs> and lastly of the main cast, Arliss Howard as Private Cowboy. Had not had a whole lot of roles before this, but after this, he was in Tequila Sunrise, National Born Killers in an uncredited role. He was uncredited as the older version of our main character in The Sandlot. That's why I know who it, I was like, why do I recognize this guy? Why do I recognize this guy? That's who he is. He was in Tuong Fu. Um, he was the villain in The Lost World Jurassic Park. Okay. Was in Amistad, 2004's Birth, The Time Traveler's Wife, Moneyball, True Blood in 2013. Okay. Yeah. So I've seen his face a lot. That's why. Okay. And Concussion. He's just kind of a an around character actor guy. Cool. I'm going to say I really liked his performance in this movie especially when we get to Vietnam. I feel like the Vietnam sequence, if if it really had truly been Joker is a bystander by which we're seeing everything and we really made that clear, Cowboy should be the focus of the second part of this movie. Okay, but I never, ever get that they're best friends. Yeah. I ne- Like, where did that happen? Did he start spending more time with him during basic because Pyle went nuts did, is he the person who became his best friend when Pyle died? Well, there's one scene. Yeah. And it's in the latrine. Exactly. And that's supposed to indicate it. But that's not enough to then have this connection that he's so upset when he dies. This is one of those weird things where we've got a pretty long movie, but I'm like, I need about 30 more minutes here. Yeah, we... we Just some context, please. Anything. <sighs> I'm right. I'm so fucking right about this movie. Well, you're right. I disagree that you necessarily need it, but... I understand why you feel that way. You need it. Like, this is becoming a constant problem with Kubrick. You have to have all this context in order to understand what the fuck's going on. You know what? If I need to read a book to understand context, your movie sucks. (laughs) The medium with which you've chosen to tell your story is incomplete. 
I felt the same way about Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. <laughs> number two. <laughs> number one is fine. Number two, you need to know too much. And we have a few Arpons. Ooh, I like Arpons. I want to mention. Random people of note. Lieutenant Lockhart, the head of the Stars and Stripes division, mm-hmm. is played by Mr. John Terry, better known as Dr. Christian Shepard from Lost. Yeah. When you told me, I was like, wait, what? I was like, oh, yeah. I'm sitting there watching and I'm like, this guy looks so familiar. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. he has jet black hair, so it's hard to recognize in this 80s moment. Ago. But I'm just like, who is this? Who is this? And I finally looked at the credits and was like, oh, that's who it is. Yeah. He's actually really good. Oh, yeah. No, he's great. In the, we have a very specific thing we're supposed to be like, doing here. I'm here to work. Y'all need to suck it up. It's not just that, but it is, yes, we are misinforming people. Yes, this mm-hmm. is a very different kind of journalism than y'all expected to do. Mm-hmm. Guess what? Your fucking soldiers suck it up and do what we told you. It's business time, y'all. Let's go. But then when yeah, no, no. the Ted Offensive happens mm-hmm. and he's like, guess what? You're going in the shit now. Yeah. No, I get, no he's, he's great. No, he did good. He's he's really good. And uh, we may run across him again as we watch some Bond movies. Ooh. So we'll keep an eye out for him. Another person that we may run across with Bond movies is Mr. Bruce Boa as the Pogue Colonel. Mm-hmm. This is the gentleman who confronts Joker when they are looking at the pit of bodies that are covered in lime. Mm-hmm. You write born to kill on your helmet and you wear a peace button. What's that supposed to be? Some kind of sick joke? No, sir. What is it supposed to mean? I don't know, sir. You don't know very much, do you? No, sir. You better get your head and your ass wired together or I will take a giant shit on you. Yes, sir. Now answer my question or you'll be standing tall before the man. I think I was trying to suggest something about the duality of man, sir. The what? The duality of man, the Jungian thing, sir. You may also know this man as Rebel Force General Reken from Empire Strikes Back. He's the main general in the Hoth base. Okay. A very familiar face for Star Wars fans. Mm-hmm. We have Philip Bailey as one of the Parish Island recruits. You would not know this man from anything other than he is a member of the band Earth, Wind, and Fire. <laughs> okay. One of the one of the continuing members. Okay. And finally, one of the other recruits is a guy named Michael Anthony Williams, who played oh. Union Kane in Rocky V. Oh, <laughs> oh, Rocky. Kind of want to go watch this again now. All right, trivia. Trivia. The sequences in the barracks were filmed with special lenses so that all recruits stayed in focus at all times. That way, no individual could be singled out as a specific focus of the scene. Cool. Kubrick was intent on like visually that. representing how they were all being treated like equally. <laughs> yes. There was a scene cut from the film of Marines playing soccer because the reveal was they were playing soccer with a human head. Oh, yeah. Gross. No. Joker's shirt in basic training says J.T. Davis. Mm-hmm. That is a deliberate reference to the first recognized casualty in Vietnam in 1961, Specialist James T. Davis. Aw, that's cool. Or dark. I mean, sad. I mean, it's, sad. it's mostly dark and creepy. That's sad. And I like the homage to this war that suit was super fucked up. Yeah. Knowing Kubrick, I don't think he had any like good intention behind it. I mean, of course not. <laughs> Have you seen his movies? Our director of photography, Douglas Milsom, actually came up with the idea of throwing the shutter off sync of the camera during the battle sequences. Mm-hmm. I think that's why we get a little flicker of light every once in a while as yeah. we're watching that. Because it's going off. And that technique came back around in Saving Private Ryan. Mm. 
So it's a film we have not seen. Was a uh, was kind of a new convention in filming those battle sequences. Cool. There were a couple of significant car crashes on the set of this film. Okay. Kubrick went scouting with Arlie Ermey and his director of photography, Milsom, but got so distracted describing the location that he was in that he crashed into a six-foot ditch and rolled the car on its side. Mm-hmm. They were all fine, but they got out, and Kubrick, as they walked back to where they were, kept talking about the location the whole time. He did not stop. <laughs> oh, my God. So that's the other weird part, is he's filming this very close to where he lives. Yeah. Like, all of this was in very close yeah. driving distance. Mm-hmm. So he'd just be like, all right, let's go home. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> okay. Arlie Ermy mm-hmm. crashed a Jeep at one o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. and broke all the ribs on his left side. Oh, my. He refused to pass out, flashed his lights until a motorist stopped mm-hmm. to get help. And Kubert claims that production had to be suspended for four and a half months for the Parish Island sequence mm. while he was healing. I believe it. This movie took two and a half years. That was probably one of the big delays. Mm. And there are scenes, if you watch him, where he literally doesn't move his left arm. Yeah, I, bu- I buy that. Because he's probably he's still, still recovering. Healing. Yeah. I jacked up my ribs at, like 10 years ago and it still fucking hurts. Yeah, but the entire left side yeah. of his ribcage. Yeah, you're, you're fucked up for a while. Woo! The banner in the conference room in Da Nang with the paper says, first to go, last to know, we will defend to the death your right to be misinformed. That feels really timely. It's a good joke. <laughs> it, it is a good joke. I'll have to ask my brother who's in the military about that one. I could not add this for who could have been better, but Bruce Willis was reportedly offered a role, mm. but had to turn down because Moonlighting's first few episodes were filming. The chopper scene with the gunner was filmed over a canal. In England, that got the feeling of the rice patties. Yeah. Could mm-hmm. No, it looks good. Show the river through. The police were supposed to warn the local fishermen that oh, that God. was what they were going to do. Yeah. And the police failed to do so. So that morning, all the fishermen were awoken thinking that U.S. military helicopters were shooting at them. That's fair. <laughs> Who would go shoot other people over their land? <laughs> Americans. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's pretty damn good. I'm sorry. It's true. Kubrick often worked with skeleton crews Mm -hmm. on his sets. That's one interesting fact that I didn't know about. Mm -hmm. Makes sense after Clockwork Orange and doing the very detailed, intimate lighting that he'd only have... As few people as possible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Once, after one of the electricians finished lighting the scene, he said, this is how I want the scene lit and I'm not going to change it. So he sent the electrician to his house to fix some wiring. He's on the clock. (laughs) (laughs) And they're like, it's probably about five miles down the road. Will you just go do that for me? I'll still pay you. Give you overtime. Okay. (laughs) (sighs) The film industry is weird. It's really weird with him because it sounds like he really tries to foster this very intricate bond, but then also isolate certain people. Yeah, it's and and it's so weird because compartmentalizes in very weird situations. And there are some movies like Two Thousand One or Doctor Strangelove or even this. Some of it makes sense. Well, some of it makes sense, but also like. That machination doesn't hurt what's the creative process of what's going on. And the arguments that go on on set are directly related to the work. Yeah. Then you have stuff like Clockwork Orange where it's like, oh, yeah. this went bad. Yeah. And so I think it's just like, he's so idiosyncratic. Mm-hmm. And at times that's fine, but other times it's really harmful. It's just so weird. 
Hmm. And that's the best way to describe it. He's just weird. That's very true. There is a crazy coincidence that during Way, there was a rock formation in the buildings out at Beckton mm-hmm. that looked almost exactly like the black monolith. And when Cowboy gets shot, it's in the background. Hmm. Kubrick said, I didn't plan it. I didn't have it set there. And this is a guy who plans almost everything in his movies. And he yeah. was like, that is one of the craziest coincidences yeah. that has ever happened. That's kind of cool, though. But it just happens to be in that shot. So weird, weird, fun stuff. There is, of course, and this is how the role is credited. The Donning Hooker sequence mm-hmm. is extensively quoted in Two Life Crew's hit, Me So Horny. I mean, to be fair, I've heard those lines my whole fucking life. I know. They're very funny, and now I've finally seen where they came from. Well, I I had always heard it quoted, Mm -hmm. and I hadn't seen this movie for a long time. And then I saw it and was like, this is where it's from. Yeah, like, now I understand everything. (laughs) It all makes sense. I can see the Matrix now. My God. (laughs) The casting for the Vietnamese characters actually came from the refugee community of Vietnamese people in the UK. That's cool. So that was a that was an interesting take. That is one thing I really appreciate Kubrick for doing mm-hmm. was he did try to cast Vietnamese true Vietnamese people. people. Unfortunately, they're very objectified in this movie. That's very very true. I think it makes sense for the story they're trying to tell. It's not the best. Although I will say this, we get a very prominent and empowered Vietnamese character. Granted she gets killed, Yes. But she is given a place of power and agency, Mm -hmm. as opposed to a lot of the other people. The other ladies, which are prostitutes that are being sold by pimps. Yeah. And one is being used as a distraction so that they can steal from them. And it's just like, this is a very impoverished country, and they're trying to make money off of these guys who are ruining their entire country. And, you know, the second sequence is actually Arvin. That's Mm -hmm. the South Vietnamese army. Yeah. So that's actually their allies yeah. forming just, out women. Yeah. It's, just, it's bad. It's, it's horrible. It's gross. Like, it also we, happened. I know, I know. I totally know that. But I'm just like, why are guys the worst? Oh, they are the worst. Men are the worst. The beautiful poetry of the sniper sequence really is that this is a 12-year-old girl mm-hmm. who is able to wreak such havoc. And the cognitive dissonance that Joker has to face when he realizes who did this like he sees her he's got his rifle and he fudges it completely because he can't comprehend that someone so young it's it's a child and it's a girl yeah and that's why two things that are that's always an ethics question that comes up during training what do you do yeah and he you know when when it goes down you know she starts shooting at him and he loses his rifle Mm -hmm. which Cowboy loses his rifle when he gets shot. Mm-hmm. It's the whole thing of without your rifle, you are nothing. Yep. You are dead. Pray! This is my rifle. There are many like it, but this one is mine. My rifle is my best friend. It is my life. I must master it as I must master my life. Without me, my rifle is useless. Without my rifle, I am useless. 
my and r- it my happens. rifle is useless without me. I'm useless without my rifle. And every time in the movie, it happens. Oh, and I like that. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Finally, the term full metal jacket. Mm-hmm. The full metal jacket ammunition has a copper coating around the lead core, and it is banned by anybody except military under the Geneva Convention because it is far easier to pass directly through a body. It doesn't okay. fragment when it hits. Mm-hmm. So the title is very specifically a comment on our inability to civilize the rules of war. Mm. War is so much more deadly and destructive, mm-hmm. even down to the bullets that you use. Yeah, because the ones we do, we use, fuck you up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if they were a full metal jacket, they would pass right through you and that would still fuck you up. But It that's- fucks you up worse because it can rip your organs through cleanly and pierce your armor and go through everything. Yeah. But if it goes through your body that way, it's a lot easier to repair. That's true, too. What we use now just explodes. It's it's meant to obliterate everything in its past. Oh, yeah. No. If it just goes through you. Well, we can fix that ease. It's cleaner. Mm-hmm. Gross. <sighs> Awards. Awards. This was nominated for one Academy Award. Okay. Adapted screenplay. Okay. It was up against Fatal Attraction, My Life is a Dog, The Dead, and the winner that year was The Last emperor oh we covered this this was the moonstruck year tanafrio got robbed of a nomination here yeah he should have gotten nominated for a supporting actor like i can like okay whatever he doesn't win that's also fine. maybe ermy he's really fucking good and he is integral to how that sequence works no he should have gotten nominated yeah one of them should have gotten a nomination there's some really great acting going on in this movie and it's it's kind of a shame all right how many peace buttons are you gonna give this movie He gets drilled down so hard for it. I really liked this movie again on the second watch. The sad part is I agree with you, and yet it doesn't bother me. You agree with me, but you don't care. Yeah. (laughs) That's okay. Which sometimes I agree with you, and then it does. It does really Like, Strange Love really did affect me going, yeah, you're absolutely right, and I totally get that. This time, I agree with you, and I also go, I don't give a fuck. I still think it's great. That's fine. That's fine. I'm going to give it a three and a half. Okay. Because I recognize those flaws, I don't want to say, I don't want to put it any higher. I really do think this is a movie that you can't expect to necessarily linearly follow. Mm -hmm. You've just kind of got to let it wash over you Mm -hmm. and really detach from it in in some sense to view it as a larger picture of what the war is, Mm. as opposed to a story of the Vietnam War. I think if you do that, it's a better feeling for it Mm. i also agree that you know it's not as good as apocalypse now because apocalypse now compels you with its story and then draws you into the madness of the war Mm. as it goes along i still think out of all the movies we've watched this is probably the strongest effort we've got Mm. i think it's the most cohesive thing that we've got so maybe but that's that's my personal feeling on it I have. I may have to think on that a little bit more. What do you give this movie? Two and a half. Okay. We're not going like way down on the list here, so I'm kind of okay with you middling. Like, it's not garbage and, you know, it's not RoboCop <laughs> or Slapshot. Nope. Like, I'm not angry at you for having made me watch this. Do you appreciate watching this movie at all? Do you... Um, a little bit. Of course, it's all colored with the millions of hours of West Point training footage I've watched. Yeah. And of course, I can't I can't watch movies like this and not think about my brother and his experiences and the stories that he's told us. But I, you know, 
You so just can't buy into that second half at it's, all. It's I love the first half, even with all the vulgarity of it. But I just without the connective tissue, your story is garbage. And I I feel like okay, this is my fourth Kubrick film, and we keep this is a consistent problem. Yes, it is with him. Oh, totally is. Like you have good ideas, and you are you can create some amazing visuals. But you don't know how to craft a story. You should stop writing things. Like, just no. Well, and he did. Okay, well, that's good. Because that's he's dead. Yes, yes, he is. <laughs> that is an accurate statement. And I don't feel bad about saying that because he no, was a he weird was, He's a problematic human being. He just is. Yeah. There's no getting around that. So, speaking of his death, he did one movie right before he died. Literally. Like, he turned in his final edit to the studio so it could get raided and he died yeah like three days later that movie of course is eyes wide shut which i have never seen i have seen like 20 minutes of it there are two kubrick movies that mm-hmm. i've never seen lolita and eyes wide shut i have not yeah so i've seen like 20 minutes of eyes wide shut so we're gonna watch that for our special patreon content for this theme Ooh. yeah so uh this should be out here fairly quickly and if you are a $2 or higher donor to our Patreon, which you can go to www.patreon.com slash Macintosh and Mod, you will be able to hear us talk about that film and all of the stuff that happened with it, because there's a lot. There's a lot that went on. Not to mention so many other movies. Our Apocalypse Now coverage is on there. Josie the Pussycats. It also has all of our coverage of The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. We're about to start recording season two of that and releasing it exclusively on Patreon. So now's a really good time. You'll get this stuff. You'll get all of our extra My Little Pony stuff. Go check it out. Indeed. But for our regular listeners who are not part of our Patreon. We're coming to the end of Kubrick and we need a palate cleanser. Oh my God, do we ever. Yeah, we need something that's a little lighter and fluffier. So we are going to pull from our grab bag, which is our list of random movies that I've yelled at David for not seeing or he's been like, Diana, what is your problem? <laughs> they fall into very different categories. It's very clear. Yeah, they do. So all of the Kubricks were one that I've not seen. So we're going to go with a classic John Cusack film. Say anything. David's never seen this before. I've never seen him say anything. And because it's fun and a good palate cleanser and David's seen it and I've only read the book it's based on, we're also going to go watch High Fidelity. We have a little Cusack double feature. Funny enough, this double feature was suggested to us by one of our listens. Hi, Bill. Hi. So, yeah. So thank you very much. We already had to say anything on the list, but it's like, oh, yeah, I've never seen all of High Fidelity. I read the book as a young teen or whatever. So yeah, so it's going to be fun. Nice little palate cleanser before we get back to our James Bond coverage. So it's going to be fun. Yeah. I'm excited. All right. Well, until next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Facebook.